0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Ephesians chapter 4, I want us to look this morning at the idea of new year, new you. And yes, this is a play on words from something I often hear, but I'll come back to that in just a moment. I want to begin with a story. Stories help me kind of make sense of things. New Year's Eve, which was a Saturday. I couldn't do it on New Year's Day because we were going to gather as a church last Sunday. So on New Year's Eve, Saturday, I, uh, I began to search for a new workout app. Of course I did, right? Don't act like you didn't. And I thought, you know, the the biggest problem I have is I don't have the right app. That's my problem. And so I began to search. I typed in, and, and I typed in best exercises for, and immediately it completed the sentence, men over 50. And so, one obvious response came to the very top. So naturally, I clicked it. And as I clicked upon this uh, uh, link, it uh, it began to guarantee me first and foremost, it, it was like it was comforting me. We want you to know men over 50 can still build muscle. I should have known I was in over my head by that point. I'm not interested. And bulking. But that's that's not the point. So it just said, you know, if you'll answer three or four short questions, we'll let you know if we can help you. Oh, that seems humble. They don't even not sure they can help me, but they want to. So I answered their three or four questions. And I mean, no more had I answered the fourth question than boom, immediately another little window popped up and said, you have just qualified for a more thorough program. If you'll answer another three or four questions, we'll let you know if we're going to be able to help you. And so that's what I did. I thought, well, I mean, I don't want to boast, but I've qualified for a more thorough program. So I answered the questions and I, I got through the, the fourth question there and almost immediately again, upon clicking on the fourth question and my answer to it, another window popped up and this computing began to happen. You could see the graph was moving all around, the, the computer's working. And I went, oh, here we go. The answer is within moments of arriving. And what it popped up was to tell me how long it would take me to reach my ideal weight. When it finished processing, May the 7th was the perfect date. I thought, God, that seems a little odd. I, I didn't really wanna lose that much weight. That seems a long time to wait. How about tomorrow? What can I get done tomorrow? And so I can get beyond it, you know? And after I read that, it said, but, but it's possible that we could personalize your more thorough program for you, and you could do this quicker. Let's personalize it. Let's do it. Three or four more questions, what's it going to hurt, right? So I answered the three or four more questions, but I, as as I began to enter into these questions, I got a little suspicious and 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 I began to be a little cynical about it because what transpired next really had nothing to do with workout regimen. It had nothing to do with physical activity. It began to ask me what I kind of took as a, I, I was a little off-put by it. It was more of a psychological eval uh, that, that carried out through therapeutic inquisition. I mean, it was nuts. It said, do, do you ever eat when you feel happy? <laughs> yeah. It's the best way to celebrate. Let's go eat, right? And then the next question asked me this. do you look for food when you get bored? I absolutely do look for food when I get bored. I'm bored. What else is there to do? Do you eat to comfort when you're sad? And I grew up in the South. That was more important to eat for comfort than it was for sustenance. I'm done with this. I don't need this app. I don't need this condemnation in my life. I closed out and went and worked out. I'm done for the year. After all, my gym, been there about two years, but it's still practically brand new. I want to talk about new year, new you. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that physical training is of some value in life. And I think the way I often take comfort in that verse is not the way Paul intended it to be comforting. But godliness has value for all things. And the new year, the new you that I want to speak of today is not about your resolutions. I'm all about making plans and strategies and carrying them out. I need to be better at that. But friends, the value of godliness for your life cannot be overstated nor overestimated. It is of eternal value for it. And so I I want us to consider today, what does it look like for you to invest in this new you in the new year? And I want you to see this today, that Jesus makes you a new creation to live by faith in his kingdom under his lordship for his glory now. That there is a new, the scripture teaches, that Jesus makes of you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we are made a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And this is not a new that we are making, this is a new that he has made of us and is carrying out within us. Let's go to our text, chapter 4 of Ephesians. I'm going to begin reading in verse 17 and I'll read through verse 24 before we continue with the message. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding and the obeying of his word today. Ephesians, the whole letter, is one of the most powerful letters for the church that we can use to grow in our understanding, but also in our execution of obedience and mission for the kingdom of God. And in the first three chapters, Paul lays a a doctrinal foundation helping us understand who God is and what he's done for us in salvation and what he's done for us in recreating us as a new creation. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are the poema of God, that, that his very craftsmanship has made us this beautiful masterpiece and he is carrying out the good works of his divine will into the world through his people that he has made chapter 3 is this powerful exaltation of prayer of strength and power in the love and the grace of God that it culminates with and then when we come to chapter 4 Paul takes a turn, as he does in his letters at the second half, and he begins to work out the practical implications and applications of what it means for us to know God in Christ Jesus and how it is that we are to live for God in this world. And when we come to verse 1, he establishes everything for our living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord of all, he says, like he he died on the cross and he descended into the depths of, of eternity and there he conquered the only one who claimed to threaten him, but he conquered him finally and fully. And then he returned. He ascended back and once he came from the empty, to, or came from the grave and left the tomb empty and ascended into hell, he did everything that was needed to establish his kingdom and his lordship. He conquered death, he conquered hell, he conquered the grave he conquered the evil one and now he is at the right hand of the father ruling and reigning supremely providentially and perfectly over all things this is the one who has made us new by faith in him friends and if you've been made new if you're a Christian if you're a follower of Jesus Christ because of grace and your trust in Jesus Christ that comes through the grace of God He's speaking to you today. If you've never come to a point in your life where you've turned from your sins and you've asked the Lord to forgive you and to bring that new creation into you, the very invitation of God today is for you to do that very thing because He wants to make you new. And the new He makes, He never misses. It's never imperfect. And it's always eternal. The heart of God for you, friends. Is to have life eternal with him. That's what he wants to do for you today. And this will be true of you too. As Lord, verse 7 tells us in chapter 4. Jesus gives gifts to his people. I'm already liking this. Right? Right? And he not only gives gifts to his people, but he tells us how he wants us to use them. He tells us why we use them, that we might build the body, that we as the body are working, that each other might grow up into him who is the head, that we might mature in Jesus' likeness to this extent, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Not a portion of him, not a percentage of him, but the fullness of him, friends. That's one of the most challenging and encouraging phrases in the whole Bible to me because I know how much, God's, I know how much work God's got to do still in this heart. But what God starts, God finishes perfectly. Philippians tells us that. And so Jesus establishes that everything about the Christian life is built on this one confession. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. At verse 17 now, Paul begins to turn our attention to practical instructions for how it is that Christ followers live under this lordship in Jesus' kingdom now. That, That eternal life, salvation in Jesus is not something that we get Put on pause for one day when. It is life with God here, now. And and looking towards eternity where our hope is anchored, but the reality of it is for here and now. And faith in Jesus, friends, produces a new you that leads to a new living that forms more Jesus in you. Theologically, we call this sanctification. Sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. But if you study that word, sanctification in Scripture, it is already a completed truth in God's eyes. It's a done deal. It's a done deal, even though in this time for us, he's carrying us through that. You see, the new life under Jesus' lordship begins not with actions that are produced by the human will. If you just grit your teeth and exert a little more effort, you'll get there. That's not what we're talking about, friends. Rather, this life under Jesus' lordship is held by faith-fueled convictions that form motivations for the glory of God within us that we might live that out in our life. What we hold to by faith, what we claim to believe by the gospel of Jesus Christ is essential for how we live now. Let me say it another way that kind of confronts some of what we hear so often in contemporary Christianity. Doctrine matters. What you believe matters desperately because you're going to live what you believe. And where you won't live it out, you'll find what you really do believe instead. That's why this is so important for us, friends. What I want us to see in these few verses are three foundational convictions that that each and every one of us who are following Jesus and and want to see more Jesus in our life as the work of God within us, three foundational convictions that establishes us under Jesus' lordship in our life. And I believe that's what Paul is presenting to us. Conviction number one is this, verse 17 to 19. Christ followers no longer live according to worldly thinking. Christ followers no longer live according to worldly thinking. You see, the Christian life begins in this way, friends, with spirit regeneration, regeneration. It is the Spirit of God, the text teaches us, that regenerates us, that brings us alive. We've been made alive with God in Christ Jesus, Ephesians teaches us, that that we've been made a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 says, the old is gone, the new has come. And this is what the Spirit of God does within us. And that spirit regeneration now empowers word renewal of the mind. Romans chapter 12, verse two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to discern what God's will is for your life. Do you wanna know that? I don't know any Christian that doesn't. And that will is his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. You see, friends, Christ's followers live differently because we no longer think the way we did before the Holy Spirit regenerated us. We, we live differently because we think differently because we are being filled with the truth of God's word and it's becoming a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet that we might walk in the way of righteousness that God has put within us. And so Paul is admonishing followers of Jesus, against living as a Gentile by no longer thinking with a futile mind. That's what he's teaching us here. Now, his reference to Gentiles, look with me in verse 17. I say this and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, Gentiles, biblically speaking, are anyone other than a Jew. So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. The vast majority of those sitting in the room today are Gentiles. That's just an ethnic reality that we can can understand scripturally. But the way Paul uses the word gives us greater understanding for what he's saying to us. He's not just using it in the ethnic sense here, but rather he's making a reference to those who are the people of God versus those who are not the people of God. In contemporary language, those who are Christians, those who are not Christians, according to a biblical standard. In other words, he's using the phrase, as he does, Gentiles, or the word Gentiles, to say, listen, Gentiles are those who are still outside of the salvation of God because they've not yet come to the point where they've repented of their sins and received uh, uh, the forgiveness of sins That God gives. And so Gentiles here is really just a reference that's outside of or disconnected from God's covenant promise and salvation. He's not making a slam against a group of people here. He's describing something for us. And when he says that in the Gentile uh, a means of thinking uh, and, and, and the way that they live there is a futility of their minds it doesn't mean that the futility of a gentile mind that it doesn't work no as a matter of fact it actually works very well what he is saying is that in the working of the futile mind of a gentile that, that it is empty of and does not regard god nor his word in the very processes, in the way it works, not only in what it thinks about, but in the way it thinks about those things and what it thinks about the way it thinks about the things it thinks about. (laughs) I know, that tied you in a knot, but you know what I was saying. And he says this, that this way of thinking is incapable of producing God's purpose and bringing about God's will in you. you see a feudal mind always describes worldly thinking that's what paul's trying to get at here he gives us three qualities of a feudal mind the first one is this in verse 18 they're darkened in their understanding They are without the light of God's command. They are without the the light of God's wisdom. They are without the light of God's counsel. You see, a darkened mind contains little of and gives lesser consideration to the light of God's truth. Why? Because it's unwilling to. Because it's unwilling to. No light can get in for this reason. Not because it's not there, but because it's not allowed to get in. That the very concept that he is putting before us here is that the darkness of a feudal mind is that it actively does not allow the light of God's truth to interfere with its processing. Didn't say that it wasn't there. I'll come back to that in a moment. The second quality of a feudal mind is that it's, it's caused by being alienated from God. There's an alienation that takes place. Not only does darkness dominate their thinking, but the whole way and counsel of God's word simply becomes foreign to them. You want me to do what? Yeah. Do you even know what's going on? Have you ever had that response to a verse of scripture you've read or a passage or, or maybe a sermon you've heard? You go, what in the world? You know, it's it's foreign. It's foreign. It's considered ill-suited for their purposes. You might say, I know what God's word says, but God must not understand what I'm dealing with right now because I don't see how one relates to the other. That's futility in thinking. That's what Paul is teaching us here. Not only does darkness dominate their thinking, friends, it's considered ill-suited for their purposes. And, And this creates an alienation, Paul says, why? Because of ignorance. Because you, you openly uh, say to God's word, not here, not now, not for this, not in that way, or I just don't like that, whatever it may be. Or maybe you just don't consider it at all, but you go about your own way. And so there's an ignorance there. Again, this is not some kind of a negative slam. It's just identifying and describing the reality of what is. It, it's not present. That's what ignorance is. It's without, it's empty. Either from a complete absence or, or maybe from the intolerance that ignores by pretending not to know. And, and he says that this is caused by being alienated from God. That alienation becomes the product of a hard heart towards God. A lack of receptiveness because of pride, because of self-trust or, hey, I got this. I don't, I don't need to worry about what God says. I, I'll, I'll take care and he'll be honored by what I offer. That's futile thinking, friends, futile thinking. And then the third quality is this, the darkness and the alienation creates a callousness towards God. That's given over to sensuality where a growing desire and greediness for more impurity So so Paul says this, like, like the mind that is futile in its thinking is not just absent or intolerant, not allowing God's word in, but actually with its back turned towards God, it's more desirous of the things of the sensual nature than the things of God. Now we often think of sensual nature in its worst extreme and that's not wrong to think of more extreme acts or practices or habits, but I think we do that as a self-protective measure. But Paul's not only including the more extreme acts, as a matter of fact, the most mundane and harmless acts that are absent of God's light and, and done without the desire of God's glory being at the center, Paul's addressing all of that here. Sensuality is anything that is self-serving. Sensuality is anything that is self-desirable. Sensuality is anything that has self at the center, that is selfish in its nature, no matter how common or mundane or extreme and perverse it may seem. It's all of that that Paul is addressing here. You're far more likely, friends, to neglect and dismiss God for common acceptable practices that everyone else is doing, but that in doing you deny God's power, you disregard His purpose, and you steal His glory for your life because everybody else is doing it. It must be okay. I don't see God striking anyone dead today. And that is as Gentile or futile in thinking as any dark perversion that you might be able to conceive. That's the argument Paul is setting forth here in this first conviction. Worldly thinking in any realm about any subject matter will never produce Christ-likeness in you, but it will always alienate you from God, and hear me, cause callousness on your heart towards God. You know what callousness is, don't you? It's like when you you have an injury and your body tries to self-heal, and what does it do? It it creates all of that stuff around it. That's a technical medical term, that stuff that it creates. Did you know that stuff gets harder than the original tissue that was there in the first place? That's what they tell me. Not depending on my own knowledge there. That's callous towards God. Because there was an effort that was rejected and denied, that got covered over by a new activity. And you tried to self-help, self-heal, and it created a greater hardness towards God than you had before that. And this isn't a one-time event. It's a daily occurrence over and over and over again. That's why alienation from God is such an issue. Let me try to flesh this out a little bit in an illustration. You can know what the Bible says and still miss it by the futility of your thinking. You may know, well, I, I know the Bible says that this is sin. And you know, some of the common arguments that we hear, sadly enough, even from pulpits today is, well, that's culturally conditioned. Yeah, because God's so concerned about what everybody else thinks of him and you living in light of what their thoughts are about him. I see that all throughout the scripture. Surely we can find one. Oh, maybe not. Another way that we do that is to go, well, I know what the Bible says and, and the Bible says this is sin, but you know, I, I know people who've lived in that and I don't really see it hurting their life that much. Seems to be working out for them. Maybe it would be okay for me too. You see, we, we have a knowledge of God, but we're not acknowledging God in that knowledge of God. It's creating a callousness. Or maybe you go, you know, I know the Bible says this is sin, but I also know that, that God loves me. And, and there's a verse in the Old Testament that says, he'll give me the desires of my heart. At least half a verse that says that. <laughs> and so you, you begin to process with the nuggets that you've heard or even you've read in the past instead of taking in the full counsel of God's word. Listen, friends, both of those may be true that God loves you. God does want the best for you. Those are both true, but but here's where you can know that you've entered into futile thinking. When truths begin to compete with the reality of your life and you begin to argue more for the reality than submitting yourself to the truth, you've just entered into darkened thinking, futile mindset. Maybe you say, well, it's not a sin to... And X is that unknown variable we'll use here. Well, it's not a sin to X. And that may be true. It may not be a sin that that the Bible says this is sin for Lane. But when Christ is not prioritized, when when X takes priority over Christ, it becomes sinful because you apply to worldly thinking that failed to honor Christ as first. You acted out intolerance towards the truth of God's word. The light shone on you and you cut it off. That's what Paul is teaching us here. You see, futile thinking, friends, is how Christians walk as Gentiles by failing to honor Christ. And we're most susceptible to this in the good things of life. We take the gifts that God gives to us and then we put them in the place of God for us. This is futile thinking. And friends, what Paul is getting at is this. The way you think determines the way you live. You know this. You hear it in the quietness of your own heart and mind. But there are certain things that maybe because of trauma, maybe because of past experiences, maybe because of successes and things of that nature, you've just come to believe nobody can convince me otherwise. I believe this because of whatever. And what Paul is saying is the less of God's word that inhabits, that permeates your thinking, the more futile your thinking and the more godless your living will become and the more of the light of God's truth that informs and guides your thinking. So understand what I'm saying here. I'm saying that it's not only present, but it's activated, right? Like, like you've, you've shaken the hand warmer and now it's mixing up, it's activated, and it's warming what it's supposed to do. That the more of God's word that is put into practice in your life to inform and to guide your thinking, the more Christ-honoring and glorifying your living will be. One of the reasons that we offer uh, uh, devotional helps on the resource wall in the North Community Room is that we, we, we make no profit off of these things, friends. It takes more time and effort to consider what we're going to offer and to, to get them here and to get them out there so they're more readily available because I know you can walk away and forget. But, but those resources are resources that help you not just know the Word but activate it to bring Christ to the center of what you're thinking, Christ to the center of what you're feeling, Christ to the center of what you're doing, so that your life can put Christ first because Jesus is still Lord whether you live it or not. But Christians care whether our lives proclaim Jesus is Lord. And that's where we're fighting to see that the testimony of our life Leaves no question for who is Lord of our life. Are you thinking distinctively in Christ-honoring ways, friends? Are you informed by, are you aligned with and prioritized according to the whole counsel of God's word? Because Christians live distinctively to honor Jesus as Lord because we consume our thinking with the light of his truth. And until you think distinctively of Jesus, you'll never live distinctively for him as Lord. This is the first foundational conviction Paul provides. Christians no longer think according to worldly patterns, worldly thinking. And then we get to verse 20. Paul says this, but, but, that's always a hard stop. Hard stop, turn, here we go. Paul says this, And here he begins to introduce a change of direction. But, verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. This is the second foundational conviction. The life of following Jesus Christ must be learned. Must be learned. I'm going to tell you what, after the heaviness of the first foundational conviction, I'm thankful for this one. Because it tells me this it's not performance, friends, it's a person. That it's not about what you produce for God. It's about the power of God producing his will in you. And that's what the life of following Jesus Christ is all about. It it must be learned. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 21, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What's he saying there? He's reminding us that there is a way to claim the name of Christ that has nothing to do with Christ. It's a self-imposed willful action or it's a religious submission to rules and to rituals whereby you think you're getting the promises of God but God never promised those things through either of these. Paul says, listen, If you learned Christ in the way that the scriptures reveal him, you confessed your sins, you repented of them, you received the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ by the blood he shed, and you are trusting him for the righteousness that he has placed on you. And Paul says this, futile thinking is not the way you learned Christ. You didn't learn to quote Bible verses, but refuse to let them have any influence in the way you live your life. What did you learn? You learned to hear God's Word. Learn to believe in Jesus and, and to trust, to live distinctively by what it is His Word says above and before what it is you practiced or you had already come to the conclusion to think. You see, learning to follow Jesus is the process of placing Him first in your life by a new way of thinking That produces a new way of living that demonstrates the new that he has made in you. And it centers on faith. Faith, friends, in him. Many will say, you know, living the Christian life is so hard. And that's true. But not in the way we so often say that. The real challenge of the Christian life is not found in matters of difficult practices. I just can't quite do that. You know, that's beyond my capacity or beyond my capability. Rather, the real challenge of the Christian life is made hard because our hearts are so often hard towards God. You say, well, Pastor, I love God. Friends, I didn't ask how you felt about him. Our love for God is known by our obedience. 1 John. Our love for God is recognized by our love for one another. Again, 1 John. I'm not telling you that you have no feelings for God, but I'm telling you the Christian walk is so much more than feelings. And the real challenge is our hard heart that believes God and what he says to be of lesser value for our life. to to have lesser practical relevance in our life or or to be of lesser glory for our life than what we would choose. And friends, might I just argue that this is the pattern of every sin? This is the pattern of every sin. Well, that's, that's so good, that's so true, but that doesn't apply to what I'm dealing with right now. So we dismiss God. Well, I know what God says I need to do here or says I need to stop doing, but I don't think he sees all that it's really doing for me. And and if he understood that, I'm just going to show that to him. These are the patterns of thinking, friends. Every sin is conceived within. But let me tell you something. The way of Christ is a way of learnedness. It's a way of learning, and there's a reason that we have to identify that sin. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 5.8 provides one of the strongest encouragements in regard to how the Christian life must be learned when it states this about Jesus. He learned obedience through what he suffered. It doesn't say he learned obedience through what he failed. He learned obedience through what he sinned, He learned obedience through his mistakes. That's the way we learn obedience. That's not the way Christ learned obedience. There was no imperfection in him from conception to crucifixion, and surely not now. You see, how did Jesus learn? Well, not through the typical pattern of try, fail, try again. That's our pattern. But rather, he demonstrates the pattern of this. First, abide. Abide with the Father. Jesus was regularly running from the crowds at the end of long days to run to the Father and spend time with the Father in communion with Him. So He would know the Father. John 17 tells us that Jesus and the Father were one. And Jesus' prayer for you and I as Christians is that we would be one with them as they were one. That's what he tells us. And as we abide, we come to know. And as we come to know, we trust and we listen and we obey. This is the the pattern that Jesus practiced to demonstrate or to model what it means to learn the way of Christ. He obeyed the Father. Why? Because he trusted him. The same reason you and I obey is because we trust. And, And why do we trust? You trust what you know. That's why. The less you know the Father, the less inclined to trust Him you're going to be, especially when it matters most. But the more you know Him, the more you'll trust Him. Obeying God is always produced by trust that flows from a deep knowledge of God and His perfect love for you. That's why God is so different from all of the other idols of religion. He reveals Himself. Why? That He might be known and that you might be known by Him. It's interesting... The Greek word that Paul uses here in verse 20, the way you learned Christ, is the same word of Jesus who learned obedience in Hebrews 5, which is the same root word for the very identity that we are given in our new creation as followers of Jesus. The word is disciple, disciple. You know, that word disciple, it's an interesting word. It's used in about six different ways in the New Testament, ranging from people who claimed to know Jesus but wanted nothing to do with him to those who would one day become his apostles and write what we call today the New Testament. There's a spectrum there. And not all are true disciples. That's the point. But in the understanding of What the Bible teaches we are as followers of Jesus, learning to follow him, it's really a new word created by the synergizing of two other words, learn and follow. Learn and follow. And if you only learn, your head may explode from biblical knowledge, but you're not a true disciple of Jesus you take all the classes ever offered in every church of all times, and it will no more make you a follower of Jesus according to the Bible. It should, but it won't. Why? Because you'll still be able to exercise feudal thinking in the way you apply it to your life. Now, what's more popular with a lot of people in a Christian culture is the follow part. Instead of worrying about learning, they just, they just live out what they see other people that they think are Christians do or that they know are Christians or do. Well, I live like this. I learn to speak the lingo and the Christianese. And, and you know, I, I, I put the show on so they'll think that I am. And the person who ends up becoming most deceived is the own person who's exercising. You see, it's both ends. Let me tell you this, there's some of the most brilliant scholars in the world today who have mastered this as a literary work and they have zero regard for Jesus as Lord. They're teaching in our universities, they're training young minds in the ways of religion, but they don't any more claim to believe Jesus as Lord than anyone. I'm telling you, friends, there's got to be a new way and Paul is saying there is. It's the way you learn Christ. When you abide with him and you grow close to know him and you trust to follow him. That's what this is all about. You will always default to futile thinking when Jesus stays only in your intellect but remains little in your heart. Learn first that you must know him in order to trust him. Where are you learning Christ in your life? Where are you learning Christ you know, so often when people are reading the Bible, they, they stop when they get to a part they don't understand. It's just a basic cross-reference of passages or a little bit of commentary work would help them understand and just keep going past that road bump. But uh, often enough, they're like, eh, I don't get it today, I'll walk away. When they read something they don't like or they read something that messes with them, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I like that. You see, friends, when the Bible begins to confront you in your futile way of thinking, confront you in your sin, you're right at the precipice of the invitation for the greatest reality of transformation into righteousness that could be. God's about working in removing and putting away what should not be there and about putting more in of who he is in his righteousness. That's what this is all about. And there's two sure ways to recognize that you're not learning Christ is every time you have a, shall we say, spiritual victory, you take credit for it. Every time you have a temptation and you say no to it, you go, hmm, that was good. I did good there, right? And you may not say it that way. It may be a little more of a, you know, I'm going to be humble about this, but I rocked that, you know. Same thing, same thing. Every time you take credit for your victory over sin, you're exercising your own willpower and ability. You're not learning the way of Christ because with sin, we turn only to Christ and recognize if it doesn't bite me here, it will bite me there. But only by the blood of Jesus and the work of the Spirit will I be able to overcome it. The other way that you know you're not learning Christ is every time you give in to temptation and indulge in sin, you end up loathing yourself. You think how horrible I am. I'm pathetic. God couldn't love me. I'm I'm terrible. Listen, friends, self-loathing knows nothing of righteous building. Why? God didn't save you to loathe yourself. God saved you to get yourself off the center of your life. And when you fail and give in to temptation, you turn to the cross. And you don't have to beg and plead for forgiveness. You just need to ask because he waits willingly to do so. Instead, you learn Christ by turning to him in temptation, by turning to him in brokenness that leads to repentance and produces greater righteousness in you, but never includes self-loathing. Christ must consume all of your heart for the new you to become the new normal. The third foundational conviction, and I'll be quick on this because I'm going to spend more time on it next week, is you put this into practice. Christ's followers live out the confession Jesus is Lord by a practical rhythm of repentance. Paul says in verse 22 through 24, putting off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, there's your identity, and just corrupt through deceitful desires, recognizing the own inclination of your heart to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after Christ you you've got to be able to identify those temptations and those sins that so easily entangle you and you've got to be able to label them as counter to God's will they are sin they only lead me away and alienate me from God and this is the very pattern of God honoring thinking that you apply to it and that's not who I am by God's grace it's who I was it's not who I am This is who I am, who he has made me to be. You see, the process of learning Christ deals with the sinful nature. Therefore, you've got to identify him. But he provides this working definition of putting that off and putting this on, putting that off and putting on Christ. It is a daily application by which we live in the eternal truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you do this, you will not take credit for your victory, nor will you loathe yourself in your defeats, but you will be set free to glory in Christ and the righteousness in which he has made you to enjoy all the glory and the blessing of life with God. And so I ask, does your day begin with the confession, Jesus is Lord, that you might practice practical repentance and form every thought around Christ who is seated on the throne. Three foundational convictions. Christ followers no longer live according to worldly thinking. The life of following Jesus Christ must be learned. Christ followers live out the confession Jesus is Lord by the practical rhythm of repentance. Jesus makes you a new creation to live by faith in His kingdom under His Lordship for His glory. Now, let's pray. Father, we pray today that you would grant to us the grace that only you can show us by your Spirit, but a very clear picture of where we are standing. And Father, for those who are here today who are in Christ, who are Christians, who have repented of their sins, Lord, you will show to us today that we stand before you blameless, not because of who we are, but because of Christ and what he has done for us. And that is where we begin every day when we confess Jesus as Lord. Likely there are many in the room today who have never come to that point in their life where they've repented of their sin, where they've turned and received that forgiveness that you offer and the righteousness that you put in us that is yours alone. And Father, I pray today that they will hear the invitation and the work of your Spirit and they will... Ask very simply, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Teach me how to trust you and to walk with you in every way. And today, they'll become a follower of Jesus, who is Lord. If that's your heart's cry today, I want to invite you after this next song. I'll be here at the front. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to encourage you and love love to help you know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Christian, you're listening to the Spirit. If we can minister to you, pray for you, we'll be here for you as well. For now, let's stand. Let's respond to the Lord in singing.